Well, good morning, everyone. We come now, um, this is the last week that we'll be in the letter of James. We're looking at his last section, chapter 5, verses 12 to 20. Last week we did look at verses 13 to 16 of this passage, uh, dealing with the topic of prayer and healing in the church. There were some difficult interpretive questions that we studied last week, but we come back to the section now to have a broader look at it and, and look at James's final words to the church that he loves. Let's read together. James, verses 12 to 20. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Our oh, Father, we are so, so grateful for this letter that you have included in your word. We are so grateful for the pastor heart of James and the way that you have been leading your church, challenging us, shaping us by your word. Oh God, it is a privilege to dive deeply into your word to understand what you mean, and to hear you speak to us. And we come again to your word today, and we ask that you would speak again, that you would shape our hearts, that your word would fill our hearts and our minds, that we would have a, a speaking ministry in our world as your word overflows in our lives. We pray in your holy name, amen. 2 Samuel chapter 23 recounts the final words of King David from his deathbed. And he's described in the beginning of that chapter in verse 1. It says this, The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of God, the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And I love that description of David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. David made it his kingly role to lead the hearts of his people into appropriate prayer and praise in the Psalms that he composed. He wanted to teach Israel 
how to rejoice in God's salvation, how to cry out for help, how to repent in response to His conviction, how to lament in their suffering, and how to magnify the splendor and the glory of God. David highlights this ministry that he had in the first part of his deathbed oracle. 2 Samuel 23 verse 2 to 4 says this, David speaking, he says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God, of, uh, just, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, The one who rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth from a, on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. How awesome to have an awareness of this ministry, this ministry that God gave him and that he walked in so gladly as Israel's shepherd king. My speech serves this purpose, David is saying, to act like dawning light and life-giving rain. David knew the power of his speech in the hands of the Father to glorify God and to bless his people. And what does James do with the last words that he wrote to this church that he loves? He desires so deeply their spiritual blessing and health. We've seen that throughout. His passion has been for their faith to work itself out in action. It's not just about what you know, but that that truth would shape your life and your practice. James has shown concern for their spiritual integrity, calling them to live humbly before their God and wholeheartedly belonging to the Lord, establishing their hearts for His coming, enduring in patient trust in the trials they are called to bear, rejecting double-mindedness and the wisdom of the world. We saw His beautiful call at the end of chapter 3 for the harvest of righteousness to be sown in peace by those who make peace. As James knows that his words are a lifeline to the church, so too he knows that there is power in the speech of the people to whom he is writing. He spoke about the need to guard our tongues because it has such destructive power, like a tiny spark that can set a whole forest ablaze. He spoke about how the tongue reveals our, our spiritual inconsistency, decrying how in the one One breath we praise our God and Father, and in the next we turn around to curse our brother or sister made in His image. Well, to the church that is suffering, this is the context in which James is writing, needing to stand fast in Christ. He closes again by addressing their speech, and he calls for speech that matches true devotion to the King and His kingdom. We are to think of our speech the way that David thought about his, as light after a dark night, as refreshing rain after the winter dry. True to form, James seems here at the end to want to say much with as few words as possible, and he does it masterfully. Instead of a a standard farewell that you might expect at at, at the end of a letter, he uses his last words to set the church on a course of courageous speech. Three seemingly distinct issues, but all related to the faithful use of the tongue in the trenches of life. And that's what we're looking at today. Number one, let's consider what James has to say about truthful speech. We're called to truthful speech. In verse 12, 
But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, some have taken this verse to be a prohibition on taking any kind of oath, whether in private conversation or even in public settings like in in courtrooms. Uh, So, for example, groups like the English Quakers refuse to take any public oaths. Their founder, George Fox, was imprisoned in, in Lancaster for refusing to swear on the Bible. And he had this to say to, to the, the judge. You have given me a book here to kiss and to swear on. And this book which you have given me to kiss says, kiss the son. And the son says in his book, swear not at all. Now I say, as the book says, and yet you imprison me. How chance do you not also imprison the book for saying so? And while his, his courage is commendable, I don't think that that's what James is referring to in this verse. I don't think he's referring to that kind of public formal oath taking. In Scripture, when God makes a, a formal covenant with Abram, he takes an oath, swearing by himself. Jesus spoke under oath in his trial, and Paul took vows as well, Um, calling on God as his witness in his letters to the churches. And I believe James has a particular situation in mind in the culture. In the Old Testament, when oaths were to be taken, God told his people to swear by his name, not by the name of another. And they were told as well to honor the oath that they had taken so as not to profane the name of the Lord in the world. The problem was by New Testament times, the common practice of a perversion of oath-taking had arisen. Some rabbis had begun to teach that an oath was not binding if it omitted God's name or any reference to or any implication of God's name. If you swore by something else, by yourself or by another object perhaps, it would not be binding upon you. In the, the Mishnah, the oral tradition of the Jews, it has a whole section on when oaths are binding and when they're not. This is the context behind one of Jesus' woes upon the Pharisees in the book of Matthew. Matthew 23, he says to them, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So the practice that had arisen was kind of like a a sneaky you know, taking sneaky, non-binding oaths in order to avoid judgment for dishonest speech. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, puts it this way comically. He said, the, the, youth, uh, the use of oaths was like children's, I had my fingers crossed when you speak. Some in the church seem to be engaging in this practice as well, continuing that common practice, perhaps eager to elicit the help of those with means by convincing them of the reliability of their word. Remember the poverty and the suffering in this church. They might have been using oaths as a a kind of escape 
hatch in order not to keep what they had said. James takes his cue from Jesus in prohibiting the practice as unfitting for the people of God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 33 to 37, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So James agrees. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. See, the need to take oaths testifies to something amiss, doesn't it? If you were to consistently tell the truth, what need would you have for taking an oath? Helmut Tillicke, the scholar and pastor who resisted compromising his integrity during the, the Hitler era, puts it this way. He says, whenever I utter the formula, I swear by God, I'm really saying, now I'm going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut it off from the muddy floods of untruthfulness and irresponsi irresponsibility that ordinarily overruns my speech. See, in a world marked by deceit, where contracts today have all kinds of loopholes, and the attitude of our culture is, if you can lie and get away with it, then do so, the church is to be marked by something else. James is calling us to radical truthfulness in this passage. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no, even when the truth comes with a cost. Why? Because your devotion is not to convenience in this life. Your devotion is to God who knows your heart and who knows the intentions of your heart. So the application of this verse would be to ask yourself, is my word reliable? Is your word trustworthy? Do you say yes when you actually mean maybe? Or maybe when you in your heart actually mean no? When you say you'll do something... Do you do it? When you say you're going to be somewhere, do you show up? When you have no intention of doing something, do you decline the request or do you leave the impression that you might do it because you fear somebody being upset with you? Do you keep your promises to your spouse? Do you keep your promises to your children? Do you live by the same kind of dishonesty that allows your co-workers to get ahead in the workplace? When you're talking about yourself, do you represent yourself accurately? When you're talking about others, do you represent them fairly? Or do you twist their words a little, change their tone when you recount what they said in order to garner somebody to your side? Do you repent and correct yourself when you realize your words have not represented the truth. In a deceitful world, being truthful can get you in a lot of trouble. And there are many people who will despise you for telling the truth. But it is a powerful evangelistic tool. It's telling the truth. It backs up the truth of the gospel. For some, it will be a gracious oasis in a parched desert. 
And God's grace flows through our churches. It flows through our families when we are a people marked by truthful speech. So first, James is calling this harassed church to keep their integrity before God, who is the one who holds their lives in His hands. Don't speak dishonestly to avoid trouble. I believe that's the point of this verse. But let your truthfulness glorify Christ in your trouble. Number two, James talks about the need for prayerful speech. Prayerful speech. Remember remember that tension has arisen in this suffering church and James's considered response to this tension is pray for one another. Pray for one another. Last week we saw his glorious invitation to live all of life, taking whatever we have from God's hand, joy or pain, take it back to him, take it to the throne of grace. In verse 13, James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Alec Matea in his commentary says it like this. Our whole life, we might say, should be so angled towards God that whatever strikes upon us, whether sorrow or joy, should be deflected upwards at once into his presence. And then in verse 14 to 16, James encourages the church to pray with one another, to pray for one another. And the context there is for healing healing from sickness, for forgiveness, for reconciliation, for restoration of what sin might have broken in our lives. Do you need help loving someone today? Pray for them. Pray with them. It is so much easier in the life of the church to elevate unity and it is so much more difficult to hold bitterness in your heart when you are sincerely bringing that, prob- that person who, who might well have wronged you but for whom Christ died into the throne of grace, to the throne of grace, to the Father of mercy who has been merciful also to you. To encourage the church towards effective prayer, James uses the example of the prophet Elijah. In verses 16b to 18, he says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit And as you read these verses, I know this is what sometimes happens in my heart. I look at the example of Elijah um, and the words, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. And it makes my heart to sink a little bit. I don't know if that's what it does for you as well. And consider my prayer life. I've, I've never called fire down from heaven. I've never stopped the rain with a, a word of prayer. One commentator says that word righteous has a forbidding ring, doesn't it? We ask the question, does this throw my prayers out of court? James is not here trying to discourage us. We need to understand, firstly, what he isn't saying. He's not saying that unless you're morally perfect or unless you're a super saint, you'll never be able to walk in effective prayer. James actually stresses the point. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's like us. The effectiveness of his prayer life was not due to moral perfection. Yes, his faith soared at times, didn't it? 
standing before the 400 prophets of Baal, saying to them, You call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, upon the name of Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, He is God. That is soaring faith. And then after that, after seeing the victory that God brings, that same Elijah would fall into despair and depression. He was brave and resolute in the face of the king one day and fleeing in fear the next. He was compassionate and selfless when met with the widow's need and later filled with self-pity, saying even wrongly to God, I alone am the one in Israel who serves you. He was a sinner made right with God, not through his own merit, but through grace alone. That's the truth that we stand in today. For this reason alone, he was invited to boldly approach as he set his heart on God. So James is saying here, we're really no different. We are sinners saved by grace. We're told to come to the throne of grace in a righteousness that isn't our own, into the ministry of effective prayer. Prayer is always about His glory and not ours. Living a life marked by effective prayer is not about sinless perfection, but I believe this also is true of this verse. James' assertion, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It is also a call to personal, individual righteousness for the sake of our prayers. Not that God won't hear us if we struggle with our sin. But that desire, that yearning to walk in paths of righteousness, making the holiness of God your aim, it is important for your prayer life. David For example, certainly wasn't sinless. We know this to be true. But he rejoices and he says in Psalm 23 verse 3, He leads me. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And when that longing and that joy fills our hearts, when God's glory and His holiness are our passion, that's when He leads us on those paths. And when you're on the path of righteousness, what you'll find again and again and again is a lifestyle of God-glorifying need that flows into effective prayer. You don't need prayer when your passion is convenience. You don't need prayer when your passion is earthly comforts and treasures. You don't need prayer when the theme of your life is self-indulgence over self-control. For the life of sacrifice, when Christ's kingdom is your passion, when you care deeply about the people of God, when you care deeply that obedience would mark your life and the life of your family, when you, your love for others is shaped by the king who is passionate about building his church, keeping his church, providing for them, who promises to return for them as the groom for the bride, then you'll find that you need prayer in life. You'll find yourself walking in the kind of need that flows into earnest and bold prayer for the church, for its mission, for the lost. About 10 years ago, a Canadian airline named WestJet ran a successful marketing campaign around Christmas time. You can go look at the video online. It's called the WestJet Christmas Miracle. They set up a virtual Santa in the departure lounge of a domestic flight. 
passengers would scan their boarding passes and that activated a screen with Santa on the screen located somewhere else with access to their flight details. And Santa asked all the passengers, what do you want for Christmas before sending them on their way? And on the video, you can see uh, kids saying that they want toys and their parents wanting electronics mostly. One couple wanted a a big screen TV uh, while another wise guy said, smiling, that he needed socks and new underwear. What the passengers didn't know was that at their destination, employees of WestJet were scouring local supermarkets and malls to find what they'd asked for. And when these passengers went to the baggage carousel to collect their bags, out came these wrapped presents, beautifully wrapped presents with their names on them. Everyone got what they asked for. The young couple cried as their TV came around the the carousel, and the wise guy nodded, smiling wryly as he opened his socks and underwear. The campaign went viral, and it meant great publicity for the airline. But as you watch, you do cringe a little, knowing that guy who asked for socks must have been kicking himself. If only he'd known and asked sincerely. James wants more for us than to live our lives holding the spiritual equivalent of underwear and socks because we failed to desire that through our lives the great, great majesty of Christ would be put on display or because we failed to believe that our prayers could actually change something or because we failed to ask big things for His glory and His kingdom. What is the impossible thing that you are asking God to do for His glory in your life and through this church and in your world? And with that, are you living in the fear of the Lord? Is your life marked daily by repentance? By repentance. If we give safe harbor to sin in our lives, we should expect for our prayers to suffer for it. Sin causes a distance in our hearts. It causes us to run and to hide from our Father. Hear the serious tone, for example, of the psalmist in 66 verse 18. He says, if I had cherished, if I had loved, if I'd held on to and kept, if I'd cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But repentance is returning. It's realigning our hearts with His good purposes and fruitful prayer is the result. It flows from that. And giving you the example of Elijah, James is trying to make a point about the character of God. What Elijah prayed for and what he saw God do is just that. It's something that only God could possibly do. That's the point of the story of Elijah. We look and see what God did through him and we know that wasn't Elijah. That could be no man. It was the power of God. Elijah's story is really the story of what God wanted to do among his people. But what he chose in his sovereign grace and wisdom to do through the simple but earnest prayers of a man whose heart was devoted to him. So whether be, so rather than being deterred from prayer through the example of Elijah, we are to be spurred on to faith. This God who, yes, He worked so vividly through Elijah. We're not expecting those same things to happen. But He is the same God who Paul says in Ephesians 3.20 is able to do far more abundantly, far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the, the power at work within us. 
for His glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. So bring your little things daily. Bring your little things to the throne of grace. The need you have to walk in holiness and in righteousness, let that be the the cry of your heart. God, keep me close to you. Keep me walking with you. And bring your big things. Bring the grand kingdom desires that you have and ask of him. Why this particular example about the rain? There's many things that James could have brought up in Elijah's life. Why praying for rain to stop? We need to remember Elijah's purpose. It wasn't arbitrary. Elijah didn't pray for the rain to stop because he enjoyed the sunshine. It was a time of great spiritual adultery in the life of Israel, which God had promised. He'd promised to them through their spiritual adultery that judgment would come in the form of things like drought. Elijah's was no arbitrary prayer. It was in accordance with God's judgment intended to wake them up. Wake up. Remember his words to them on Carmel. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. This may be why James uses this specific prayer of Elijah as he turns to give his last call to this precious church. There are some in the church who are living double-minded lives with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. So using his last words to them, James invites them and he invites us to another very important speaking ministry. Number three, let's look at the call to rescuing speech. Rescuing speech. Verse 19 and 20, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. And will cover a multitude of sins. Now we're all prone to wandering. Every day prone to truth forgetting. Prone to believing the the lies that the enemy wants to tell us. So every time we encourage one another. Every time we exhort one another. Even when we bring gentle rebuke and love. We experience as the people of God. The grace of belonging to the family of God. And though it may be difficult and painful, true believers invite this. They invite this blessing into their lives. They desire leaders who care enough about them to be honest about their sin. But James is thinking here of those who have wandered far. Without seeking to answer the theological questions we have as these words arise about this reality, James just addresses it. One that you probably, if you've lived any time in the church, have experienced painfully. That for whatever reason, people that you thought were so sincere in their faith, even strong in their faith, have wandered away from the Lord. The Lord they once professed to love and follow. For some, it was the erosion of pure doctrine perhaps in their hearts and their minds, letting go little by little the the truth that Scripture is all that we need, that Scripture is authoritative over our lives and the foundation for our lives until ultimately they find themselves adrift at sea. For others, it was the case maybe of doctrine following practice. They wanted to live in a certain way. 
They wanted to walk a certain path, a path of disobedience. And so slowly but surely they drifted from the truth and don't seem to know what they believe anymore. For some, it's, as Jesus said, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches like weeds that grow up to choke the seed of the word in their lives. For others, when Christian obedience leads to trouble and their roots don't go down deep, their faith withers and dies. And with his final words, James utters a call to the church. As we are all invited into a ministry of effective prayer, so we're all called to this ministry of rescue. And he's not talking only to the elders here. The elders were back in verses 14 and 15. This is to anyone. Is anyone wondering? Let him know that whoever brings him back. What should happen when a believer becomes aware of great spiritual danger in the life of another believer. James has already told us what shouldn't happen, but what sadly often does. Judgmental people become slanderers rather than rescuers, filled with self-righteous love rather than the love of Christ. James would have you join God in something grand. See the intensity of this language here in verse 20. The wonderful results of our courageous speech. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Could he be any clearer about the stakes involved here? Save his soul from death. James looks down the line to the ultimate end of that wonder, what could be coming, so that when he is turned back to faith, he's able to say that he's been saved by his brother or sister. When a wanderer is brought, brought back to the truth, a soul is saved from eternal death. James draws from the beautiful language of Scripture, the idea of covering for sin, so the psalmist says, Psalm 32 verse 1, Blessed, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. It is blood that covers our sin. The idea of a totally sufficient payment being made on a sinner's behalf. This, James is using striking language. Do you see what's going on here? And you might be thinking, and I think rightly at this point, what James wants us to do is something that we cannot do. I can't save a soul from death. I can't cover a multitude of sins. God alone must and can do that. But that's what's so amazing about this passage. Is God calling us into something? James has chosen his words carefully. He doesn't need our editing. God invites his people into the ministry of rescue to rescue the wanderer. How amazing that God would invite us into the ministry of soul rescue. And as in prayer where God chooses to accomplish his sovereign will through the petitions of his people. So here... He chooses to perform miracles of restoration through weak vessels like us. It ought to humble us that the shepherd would call us into this, to work through us, to save, to keep, to shepherd his precious ones. Alec Matea sums it up so well in his commentary. And I want to read this to you. He says, 
we cannot but be struck by the fact that James speaks of the concerned believer as bringing back, saving, and covering the sins of the one in error. Surely these are things which only God can do. Only God can forgive sins, save us from them, and give us the gift of repentance by which we return from our personal far country. How can we do these things? The damning words, Jesus embraced his mission like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He said in Pilate's court, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Do you listen to his voice? Having lived the perfect life, having walked perfectly the paths of righteousness, on the night before he gave his life as a ransom, For many, Jesus prayed for us. He prayed for our keeping. He prayed for your spiritual protection. John 17, 17 to 19, he said this, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus is our good shepherd. He's the one who left the 99 for the one, came to seek and save the lost. And he finds that one. He puts that one over his shoulders and leads them back into the fold of God as the angels rejoice. He speaks and the sheep hear his voice and follow. Do you hear his voice today? Are you following our Lord? He spoke the words of the Father and he did the works of the Father. And we love those words and those works on our behalf. And even so, we go in His strength, doers of the Word, those who so speak and so act, that our lives might result in the glory of our Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we truly are humbled by the truth that You would call us to follow you and you would lead us into a ministry that we are to engage in our world. We are humbled that you would use us weak as we are with a fallen nature as we have. We are encouraged by your grace, by the truth that we do not need to rely on our own strength but that your your strength is made known in our weakness. Your grace is sufficient for us. I pray that you would give us courage, Father, as we minister to one another. May we as a people be marked more and more by a desire and a love for righteousness, for holiness, for zeal and devotion. We don't want to be a people of convenience, And living for the comforts of this 